So we are in week two of our series, What We Say About God, and as John mentioned, we're exploring this idea that, that we display something about God as a community, not just individuals in the community, but when we all get together, how we act, what we do, says something about God to the watching world. And last week we talked about celebration, this idea that, that when we allow the world to see the worst of us so that they can see the best in God, his grace, what it has done in our lives, this invites people in. And this week we're gonna be talking specifically about in, invitation. And I wanna suggest that, that, that people are invited into a community, not just by individuals, but by the posture of that community itself. Yes, individual people invite individual people into the church, but if the posture of that church is not inviting, then no one's gonna accept the invitation. For example, I will never join a CrossFit community, no matter how many times my friend Jen invites me. And she is a warm, kind human being, and I have no doubt she wants me to go, but I also know what they're gonna do to me when I get there. I've seen the pictures. I can't do a push-up unless I'm on a trampoline. That is not a, a community with a posture that's inviting to me. We reflect God not only as individuals, but as a community. When we all get together, what we say, what we do, how we act, how we make people feel, leaves a different impression than the one that we leave as individuals. So we can actually be a community full of, of people who are individually inviting people into the church, but we can be sabotaging our efforts by the way we behave once those people get here. We can be a community full of people who are individually inviting others in, but we can be sabotaging our efforts because if we're only inviting people who look like us, then, we, then our community begins to look prohibitively homogenous. I dated a guy in college who went to a Pentecostal church, and I had been a Christian for a couple of years, and he invited me to, to come to church with his parents, and, and I didn't know anything about Pentecostals, but I thought, they love Jesus, I love Jesus, what could go wrong? So during the service at one point, uh, the pastor indicates that this is the time that we will now all begin to pray in the spirit. And people all around me started saying these words that I didn't understand. The whole room kind of burst forth in these strange sounds and syllables and, 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 and I just kind of stood there looking dumbstruck. I didn't know what was happening. And after a couple of seconds, my, I see my boyfriend kind of like peek out of the side of his eye to like see what I was doing over there. And I'm looking at him with wide eyes like, help me here, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. And he continued to say these strange words that I didn't understand, but, but he gave me this kind of head nod like, like, come on, get on with it. And so I looked straight ahead and I began to say the Our Father in English. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And his parents look over at me and he looks over at me and I could tell by the look on his face that I had made some serious miscalculation. So this went on for a few more minutes and then we all sat down and, and, and enjoyed the rest of what was really a lovely service. But then after the service, he asked me, why didn't you try to pray in the spirit? And I said, I thought I had. And he said, but you didn't speak in tongues. And I said, yes, I did. It was the English tongue. And he said, no, that doesn't count. And so then I said, also in English, we're breaking up. <laughs> to be very clear, I, I think Pentecostals are great and, 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 and they love Jesus and they don't actually require a manifestation of tongues to be a part of the church. But I use this example because I was invited into that church. I was invited by, by him and his parents. They invited me warmly and kindly. They picked me up and gave me a donut on the way. I was invited into the church, but when I got there, the community didn't feel inviting to me because everyone there was the same in a way that I was not. 
So I didn't feel free, I didn't feel safe to be who I was or to hold the opinions that I had about spiritual gifts and their manifestations. And I'm sure we've all had this kind of experience in, in other contexts. You show up to a party and everyone's dressed up and you're wearing jeans. How do they know? It's not on the invite. We've all been on the outside of a group looking in and there, and there, and there can seem to be qualifications that haven't been advertised but we're pretty sure that we're not meeting them. This is the question that every single person brings to the church before they will enter it. Am I safe to be known here? Am I safe to be seen as I am? If you have your scriptures, you can open up to Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse four. In your bulletin, it will just be uh, verses 10 and 11, which will be our focus, but I'm gonna back up a little bit here to start. Verse four. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Then verse 10. His intention was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those last two ver verses will be our focus. If you were here with us for the Ephesians series, you'll recall that the, the major theme of this book is unity. And, and this mystery that, that Paul is writing about is, is that God chose to make a new society comprised of both Jew and Gentile believers, people who used to be on the outside, that he made this new society, reconciled to him by Jesus and also reconciled to one another. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus meant that there were no longer any boundaries. There was no boundary, racial, cultural, socioeconomic. There was no boundary between Jew and Gentile. And there was no longer a boundary between God and this single new society made of people who were very different. And this was something radically new. There was, there was a Yale uh, historian who was writing about why Christianity was so successful in the Roman Empire, and one of the reasons he cites is what he calls its absolute inclusiveness. Tim Keller also talks about this. He says, Judaism never recovered from its need to culturally convert. Pagan deities were geographically limited. People would only worship their local gods, and Greek and Roman ideals only appealed to the well-educated, and the mystery religions were only for rich people because the, the initiation rites were so expensive. And so, one of the most appealing characteristics of the early church was that everyone was welcome. On the day of Pentecost, when God sent his spirit to dwell in the hearts of his believers, there were only about 120 of those believers on the earth. And when he sent his spirit, they began to prophesy, they began to speak in tongues, in languages, terrestrial languages, like French and English. They had never learned them. And so the Jews that were listening that were from all over the place. I think Acts 2 names like 16 different countries that were represented. The, the, the people who were listening recognized that they were hearing the gospel talked about in their own native tongue. And as a result, 3,000 of them believed and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So it didn't matter what language you spoke or what your cultural background was, you were invited into the church. Then in Acts 10, there's a group of Gentiles, non-Jews, people who are outside of the covenant of God who received the Holy Spirit and begin to prophesy. So it didn't matter where you were from, it didn't matter what your background was, you were invited into the church. There's an Ethiopian eunuch who served in a court of a queen who worshiped pagan deities. It didn't matter what you did for a living. 
you were invited into the church. There's the Samaritans in Acts 8. It didn't matter if you had been enemies for decades, you were invited into the church. There's, there's Saul, who became Paul. It didn't matter what you had done in the past, not even the, the persecution and murder of God's people, you were invited into the church. It didn't matter where you were from, what you'd done, who you were, you were included in the invitation of Christ. So that question we all bring to the church, am I safe to be known here? A church full of diverse people who live in unity with one another answer that question with an unequivocal yes, yes. You are safe to be known here, everyone's invited. Diverse people living in unity because of their love and their God is compelling. People who are all the same living together in unity isn't compelling because, because you're like everyone else, there's no risk. There's no conflict, there's no fear of being seen as you are because you are like everyone else. If we are to be a church that takes a posture of invitation to the world, then we must choose unity over uniformity. We must be a place that is safe for people to be known. Again, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word used here for manifold is polupoikilos, and it means many colored. It was used to talk about flowers and crowns and embroidered cloth. This verse is saying that, that the diversity of the church, this one new community full of many diverse people, the church is a means of displaying the multifaceted wisdom of God not only to the world, but in this case, even to the host of heaven, angels, who could unmake our bodies with the lightest touch, learn about God and his purposes through watching the growth of the church. McKay writes, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. As the body of Christ, we always have an audience, both on the earth and beyond it. Have you ever met anyone who, uh, have you ever met someone who doesn't see a mess? For me, it's in the car. I don't see a mess in my car. And this drives my husband crazy. He keeps a very neat car. And he says, he tells me, when, when you step on the brakes in your car, nothing should move. This is, of course, not true in my car. When I slam on the brakes, stuff moves in the glove box, in the back seat, in the trunk. I once carried Christmas decorations around in my trunk for a whole year because it never occurred to me that that wasn't like a reasonable place to store them. I don't see a mess in the car. I see a mess in the kitchen. And when Rob and I started dating, I actually thought, I was really impressed by the condition of his kitchen. It was always clean. There was ever, like, there was at most one dish ever in the sink when I came over. And then after we'd been dating a while, I realized that he actually only owned one dish when we started dating. So when we first got married, uh, a lot of our early arguments were about sauces, condiments, um, because I don't think there's anything so foul than ketchup or mustard or mayonnaise when it's been left on a plate overnight to harden. It just grosses me out. All I have to do is rinse it. That's all I have to do. And he's not lazy, he's not unkind, but he didn't see a mess in the kitchen. Now, he could find CVS bags in my car that have receipts dating back to January of 2015, and he probably thinks all you have to do is throw them away, <laughs> but I don't see a mess in the car. So marriage is, is hard work because you're different people who see things differently, choosing to do life together. And this is what the church is, it's different people who see things differently, choosing to do life together, and it is not easy. It does cost us something. But listen, Rob, Rob was not sinning against me when he forgot to rinse the ketchup off of his plate. 
Since World War II, the average number of close relationships that people report having has shrunk, while the, the average square footage of, the, uh, of our houses has increased. This is almost the polar opposite of the ancient Near East, where, where multiple generations of families lived in the, in, on the same land in close community together, sometimes in the same dwellings. And, and I'm not saying that we should move back to that model, but I am saying that this movement is characteristic of a cultural choice that we've made to insulate ourselves from the difficulty of human relationships. We flee the tension. Ephesians, Ephesians 4.2 says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with one another, making an allowance for one another's faults because of your love. Rob isn't sinning against me because of the ketchup. We are so insulated by our physical, increasing physical and, and emotional distance from one another that, that when someone causes us discomfort, we actually think it's a sin, it's not always a sin. Make an allowance for one another's faults because of your love. People who cause us discomfort are not actually sinning against us sometimes, they have faults. And we're called to make an allowance for these faults because of our love to bear with one another and we would do well to be generous with our allowance because I promise you, Someone's making an allowance for your faults right now, too. I'm no picnic, I live with me. My husband makes an inexhaustible allowance for my faults. And it helps me to remember that the crusty ketchup isn't sinful. Almost every one of us has lived with someone who is hard to love. Or we have coworkers who, who drive us completely crazy. Even in Christian ministry, we get this idea in our heads that if, that if, uh, if these people would just leave us alone, if they would just stop needing things from us, then we could do the work that God has called us to do. God, if you would just make Steve stop being such a slacker, or if you would just help Billy to see the big picture, then, 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 then we could actually get something done for you, God. We could get so much done. Or maybe it's your family. You feel like if they could just try to need less from you, you could get so much done. You could leave a legacy. You could do what God has called you to do or be what God has called you to be. But the trouble with that is, God is more interested in transformed people than transformed ministries. And the tension of human relationships is an agent of transformation in our lives. It gives us the opportunity to practice the virtues that we've been called to reflect as the body of Christ. Don't flee the tension. The tension transforms us even if it makes us less efficient. Efficiency can't cure the problems of human violence and greed and pain and loss. Only love can do that. And love is the most inefficient thing we will ever do. Of course there's a cost. It's easier, and I think it's probably more enjoyable to just be around people who are like us, but there is a cost to uniformity too. When the church fails to be the diverse, multicolored reflection of God's wisdom, when it loses its polypoikilos, those on the outside looking in begin to wonder if they belong. Is it safe for me to be known here? We lose our posture of invitation. We look less like the body of Christ, who himself invited prostitutes and tax collectors and lawyers and lepers to his table. And I think it's easier, at least in our unique place in time and history right now, for us to all get on board with at least a part of this, right? Like, like yes, of course we should invite people into our church with different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds and racial backgrounds that are different from our own. It, perhaps it's not as easy as it should be, but it's at least easier. No one wants to be accused of being racist or nationalist. 
But what about diversity of opinion, of thoughts, of feelings, of political persuasions? Would a person who is pro-choice look on our church and feel like this is a safe place to be known? I know a physician who loves Jesus, but he doesn't believe that, that life begins at conception. Would he be welcome at our table? Could you serve communion to a Trump supporter? Could you receive communion from a Clinton supporter? Would both look on our church and know that they are welcome? We should hope so. Because I promise you one thing, Jesus does not endorse your political candidate. Gerard Lofink writes, it is true that Jesus never called for a political revolutionary transformation of Jewish society. Yet the repentance which he demanded as a consequence of his preaching of the reign of God sought to ignite within the people of God a movement in comparison to which the normal type of revolution is insignificant. Jesus calls people on both sides of the aisle to repentance because government can't solve a heart problem. Policies won't actually reconcile our differences because our, our differences are infinite, social, economic, cultural, theological even. Yes, Jesus wanted social change, but not social change enacted by a policy which would by nature serve one person at the expense of another. The, the social change, the revolution Jesus sought was one that could only be brought about by people who willingly chose to extend grace knowing that it would cost them something and who chose to pay it all the same. And I'm not saying that we don't want our church to have convictions. We want them to have deep convictions. But deep convictions are formed in the presence of tension, of questions, of differences. Don't flee the tension. And of course, there's someone who is right and someone who is wrong, but, but there are smart, God-fearing people who argue opposing sides of most issues. Let's not lose the war of unity over battles of doctrine. And I, I, don't, I don't mean the fundamentals of our faith. We believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. We believe that, that we are sinners and that we are only saved by the blood of Jesus. But if we have unity in these and we can stick it out together amidst our disagreements, those differences will sharpen both of us. And perhaps the truth will become clear to all of us in the crucible of conflict. Don't flee the tension. And I'm not saying that everyone who sits in a church building in the last days will be revealed to be the church, but what I'm saying is how dare we presume to pre-screen for the Holy Spirit by who we do and don't let in the door. God does not want our protection from the people he misses most. He wants every possible opportunity to get closer to them. If you only want to serve Jesus with the people who think like you, you don't want unity, you want harmony, and, and they're not the same thing. You and your spouse can be committed to Jesus and to serving one another, but, but, but you can have a different idea of what that means. One of you can think that serving each other is quality time, the other can think that it's providing for the family. That's just a lack of harmony. And harmony will always ebb and flow because no two people were ever created alike, exactly the same. And that is a reflection of the mysterious, multifaceted wisdom of God. If we don't want the people that we consider to be sinners to be in our church, then let's remember we'll have to show ourselves to the door also. So what am I saying? I'm, I'm saying that you should invite every single person in your sphere of influence into the church. And you don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to like invite people off the street. 
God has given every one of us a sphere of influence and, and, and every person in that sphere is a person he is jealous enough to die for. What are we afraid of? That they're gonna be offended? That they won't wanna hear it? That their lifestyle won't be compatible with it? That it's gonna cause tension in the relationship? Listen, you're not responsible to change anyone's heart. The Holy Spirit does that. Don't pre-screen for him. We're responsible to bring people to where the Holy Spirit has the best chance of getting into the nooks and crannies of their heart, and that's the church. That's the church where we both celebrate and demonstrate the grace of God in our lives. If you believe Jesus is who he said he was, then the most callous thing that you can do is to not invite people to church for any reason. And if you, if you think that they're gonna be offended, you should be more enthusiastic, not less, about inviting them to the feet of Jesus, because if you don't, you are taking it upon yourself to decide for them that happiness is more important than heaven, that ease is more important than eternity. And listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should hug the person who brought you because I just let the cat out of the bag and now you know that they want you to be a Christian. Yes, they want you to be a Christian. And no, it's not because they, they think you're a heathen and that they're secretly judging your lifestyle. They want you to be a Christian because they've found something in Jesus. They've found something that, that has brought them more joy, more healing, more peace, more meaning than anything that this world has ever offered them and they wanna share that gift with you. And you should hug them because they invited you into this gift at great personal cost, at the risk of your rejection, at the risk that your relationship, one that they cherish, may never be the same again. I promise you the person who brought you didn't do it because they want you to begin to morally conform to a faith you don't yet profess. They brought you because they found in Jesus the entry into Eden and they don't wanna go without you. And if you disagree with what, you're, with what we're teaching, then please stay, we want you to stay, we need you to stay, we need you to hold us in tension that will help us to grow, yes. This is a safe place for you to be known. No, it won't always be a comfortable place. By safe, I don't mean unchallenged. I'm not trying to pull a bait and switch. The invitation of the gospel is an invitation to the truth that brings life. And the truth will inevitably expose things in all of us that are incompatible with the life Jesus has called us to. The closer we get to the truth, the more it will change us. So by safe, I simply mean that there is no starting place that disqualifies you from leaning into Jesus through his church, but Jesus leaves no one unchanged. Some of you know that over the last several months I've been experiencing a slew of really weird health symptoms and it's looking more and more to be of the autoimmune variety. And autoimmune diseases, very crudely, are diseases in which your body mistakes parts of itself for foreign invaders and begins to attack its own tissue as a result. So I've been reading this book called An Epidemic of Absence by a man named Moises Manoff, and, and, and he'd intentionally infected himself with hookworm. This is a parasitic worm that attaches to your gut. It, it punctures a blood vessel, and then it feeds off of your blood. He himself has an autoimmune disorder which caused all of the, the hair on his body to fall off around the time that he was in middle school. And I think we can all agree that's the absolute worst time for something like that to happen. His immune system attacked his hair follicles. It also gave him eczema, it made pits in his nails, and it gave him these terrible seasonal, seasonal allergies. 
So Manoff is a scientific journalist and he had been following stories of these people who had self-infected with hookworm from, from a, a physician they got it from in Mexico. And they all had various autoimmune diseases and, and many of them had seen significant improvement as a result of, of the worm infections. And the argument he makes in the book is that our bodies, our immune systems have adapted over thousands of years to deal with a certain parasitic and bacterial load. This is what's known as the human microbiome. The human genome is, is, is all the genes that are in our actual body cells, and the human biome are, are, are all the genes of the things that live on our cells. And science is just tipping the iceberg on this research. We already know that the cells of the microbiome outnumber our own cells, our own body cells, three to one, at least. And we know from research with infants that, that the more diverse your microbiome is, the less susceptible you are to attack, to infection. This is why we take probiotics. This is why children who are raised with dogs uh, have fewer allergies. So he traces the, the fossilized and documented evidence of parasites from, from the Paleolithic age through the Industrial Revolution. When our country industrialized, we, we were living um, in such close quarters uh, and there was so much waste and producing so much waste that we actually started to make ourselves sick and so we had to clean up. And so we invented sewage systems and, and waste, water waste management plants and, and penicillin was invented and now we all carry around little pocket hand sanitizers. And, and, and these are of course good developments. Uh, these, these, these made infant mortality drop exponentially and life expectancy increase and, and diseases that were once fatal were now treatable. However, in the midst of our cleanup, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. We also removed a part of the microbiome that our immune system had evolved to coexist with. Common parasites like hookworm that were gross because it's a worm in your stomach, but, but which had no serious or fatal implications. It would drink a drop or two of your blood each day and it would otherwise leave you alone. And so Manoff, who, who viewed these reports with some skepticism, decided to self-infect with hookworm so he could write more credibly about the subject. And so for the first couple of weeks, he felt pretty sick and thought maybe this was a mistake. But then he started to notice these small improvements. First, his sinuses cleared up. And then his nails began to get smoother. And then his eczema completely went away. And then after a while, he started to notice these, these tiny little sprouts of fine hair where his eyebrows had once been. What Manoff argues is that some of this microbiome was actually protecting us friendly parasites and bacteria. There's actually bacteria in your stomach that allows you to, to absorb vitamins and minerals. Friendly bacteria and parasites actually put a healthy tension on our immune system that made it easier to tell friend from foe. And now, to be very clear, I'm not telling you that people who are unlike you are parasites. Um, the analogy breaks down at that point. Uh, and if being unlike another person makes us parasitic, then we are in fact parasites to someone else. But unscientifically speaking, Things that are unlike us in our own body hold it in a tension that helps it to flourish. And yes, it takes something from us, blood, but it gives us something back, health. We should not try to diminish the diversity of the body of Christ. It makes us healthier. It will cost us something, yes, but it gives us back something better. It holds us in a tension that makes us stronger, and yes, it is an uncomfortable tension, but the discomfort gives way to more abundant life, to, to a diversity of the body of Christ that is not only inviting to people who are far from God, but instructs angels on the wisdom of the Almighty. Isn't that worth a little discomfort? 
prophesied in Isaiah that in the last days God will gather Israel from where she's been scattered over the corners of the world and he will restore her to what she was intended to be, salt and light, a community so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the watching world wants to know the God she lives this way for. And he'll set her on a high mountain, and all the nations of the world will pilgrimage to her as God's light shines on her. And it's possible to interpret this as a reason to withdraw from the world so we can be the perfect community, but but it's just the opposite. If God is most accurately reflected through the, through the unity of a diverse church, then withdraw isolation from the world will delay the day of pilgrimage, not hasten it. We can't withdraw. The, the, the Essenes did this. The Qumran Essenes did this. They thought if they lived perfectly and piously enough that they would, that they would become the true Israel of God and God's hand would be forced to, to go ahead and begin his reign. But God won't be rushed. God won't be rushed into coming back if it's at the expense of anyone he wants to bring with him. The kingdom of God has begun to arrive, but it arrives slowly, so slowly, like a door cracking open to let the light in, slow enough to let the eyes, to leave time for the eyes of God's beloved lost to adjust. And actually, my point isn't even that the Essenes should have lightened up. My point is that they should have rejoined the larger body of Christ instead of breaking off from it in their isolated piety. They represent a part of the diversity of the body. They were a member of the body. And a disembodied conscience, living off by itself in the desert because it's so fed up with the hands and the heart that keeps sinning, isn't doing anyone any good. The heart needs the conscience but the conscience also needs the heart. It cannot fulfill its purpose as a disembodied member. And the body is worse without it. If you've been running away from the church for a while because it's not living up to what you know it's supposed to be, you're right, it's not. But your absence is part of the problem. Diversity includes both the legalist and the liberal. We hold each other in attention that helps us to grow. And we can look around at the people here who drive us crazy, and we can pretend that we're not brothers and sisters, but that does not change the actual fact that we are blood relatives in Christ. So if this family is not yet what you hoped it would be, come back to it and bring as many people as you possibly can, because only then can the watching world look at our unity, even in the midst of our disharmony and our diversity, and know that yes, This is a safe place for me to be known too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this opportunity to be here as one body reflecting your grace to the world. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to to have the courage to influence the people that you have given us to love. That we would reach out to to every single person that we know, not, not because we're selling them something, but because we want to invite them, we care enough about the people you've given us to love to invite them into this gift of grace. Lord, I pray that that you would remove every obstacle that we can think of to helping people set forth into the church, into the place where they can hear your grace and see it celebrated and watch it be lived out in the transformation of the hearts of the people who brought them here. 
Lord, give us the courage to do that. And Lord, if there's anyone here who, who does not yet know that grace, who has not tasted the delight of, of being your son or daughter, Lord, would you move their heart? Would you show them through, through the transformed lives of the people around them, through the way that we celebrate, through the way that we reflect your grace? Would you show them that this is a safe place for them to be known, for them to take that step? Would you, would you invite them into your body so that they can help us better together reflect your character to the watching world? And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.